Brian Stewart's one of our elders. I'm going to ask him to come and lead us in a time of prayer, and then we're just going to get into our Bibles. Brian, come lead us. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us an incredibly powerful gift. That gift is a free will. And with that free gift gives us the power to choose you, to choose eternity with you in heaven. But on the other side, the flip side of that, it also gives us the power to choose eternity without you in hell. My prayer right now is those who have not accepted you as their Savior, Lord, that this message will touch their hearts in such a way to to give them the ability to realize the truth of Scripture, that we do have a decision to accept you or deny you. Lord, touch their hearts. Give them the ability. Give them the strength. Give them the encouragement with your spirit to reach out to you for salvation. Lord, I pray for Phil right now that the words that you have given him for this message will be powerful that they will touch and encourage each one of us, and that we will go out and share our faith in a world that is lost. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Five weeks ago, we started a series of sermons that we have titled, very simply, Eternity. If you weren't here to hear the first four messages, they are online at LibbyChristianChurch.com, or you can request copies of those in the Welcome Center. There's a notebook there where you can just sign up, and we'll have them ready for you next week. For the first four weeks, we talked about heaven, and that's encouraging. It really is, and we had a great time as we explored all that the Bible has to say about the hope that every Christian has. Last week, we took a break from that series, and and all I did was preach Jesus. It was Easter Sunday, and that's appropriate. We just preached Jesus. But it was also appropriate to look at the dividing line between heaven and the subject matter we're about to go into, which is the flip side of heaven, hell, because Jesus is the dividing line between the two. So it really did make sense as we came up against Easter Sunday to be able to do that. Now we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at a somewhat discouraging concept in Scripture, yet it's one that we all need to be familiar with, not only for our own sakes, but to help other people avoid the traps that are placed in front of them as they possibly find themselves on a path that's leading there. A lot of folks would say, preacher, I I like it when you preach heaven. Let's do that on a regular basis, but we don't need to preach hell. That just makes us feel bad. There's the problem with that. You can't preach one without the other. We cannot hold true to the Word of God and preach heaven and ignore hell. There are a lot of preachers and teachers today that are trying to do that very thing. They are trying to disregard everything that the Bible has to say about hell. Maybe they just skip over it and and as such, they passively choose not to teach it. But my friends, we can't do that. We have to take care of this issue. We have to make sure that people know what Scripture says. As I was getting ready for these next three weeks, past few days, I was reading messages from some of the great preachers that have already gone on to heaven. Back in the the day, preachers weren't afraid to grab hold of this subject and to preach on it extensively. In fact, there were, during the days of the the two and three week revivals, message after message that was preached on the subject of hell. 
the revival speakers would get up in the pulpit and they would thunder away on the concept, preaching exactly what Scripture has to say about it, and literally hundreds of people would give their lives to the Lord as a result of what they had heard. I had gone back and pulled out some of those messages, found some of them online, others I'd had copies of from years ago, and I've been doing a lot of reading through the messages that they had preached, encouraging teaching. It really is deep teaching that's been lost in modern times. But two of the best messages I heard preached didn't come from revival speakers, didn't come from preachers or theologians. They came from kind of unexpected places. Like this one, it was preached on a a troop ship coming home from World War II. A bunch of soldiers were on board and they'd been listening to a chaplain as he was speaking about different things and they had heard him mention a, a couple of different subjects that were disconcerting to them and they weren't exactly sure where this pastor lined up with the Word of God. So a group of them caught him one day up on the deck and they kind of pinned him up against the wall and decided they were going to get to the bottom of what he believed. And one of the men, fairly bold in his beliefs, would actually look at the chaplain and say, Preacher, do you believe in hell? Without meeting, missing a beat, the chaplain looked back at him and said, I certainly do not. Almost as if speaking with one voice, the soldiers looked at him and said, Then would you please resign? That caught him off guard. They said, if there is no hell, we have no need of you. And if there is, we don't want to be led astray. That's good preaching. It really is. If there is no hell, we have no need of you. And if there is, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to get this one wrong. I liked what they had to say. And as much as that one was powerful, I found another message preached, not by a group of soldiers, but this time by a housewife. And and hers is maybe even a little more pointed than the soldier's was. See, she was married to a man who had a a powerful thirst for alcohol, and he had given himself over to it time and time again. In fact, the way it usually played out is he'd come home from work, maybe have dinner with her, maybe not, and then he would head off to the bar where he would spend the rest of the evening drinking. He would stumble home well after dark, come inside and just pass out. Well, one night while he was at the bar, he was bragging about his Christian wife and the things that she would do for him. All kinds of different things were coming out of his mouth and his drinking buddies were listening to it, not believing the majority of what he had to say. Finally, at one point after he'd had a lot to drink, he said, my friends, I could take you home tonight. I could wake my wife up and tell her to make us a fine meal. And she would, and she would serve it without ever complaining. Those boys didn't believe it. They kept on drinking, but they didn't believe it. The more they drank, the more they challenged him. And finally, one of them said, why don't you just prove that she'll do that kind of thing? And he said, that's fine, I'll do it, come with me. They all left the bar and went to his house. Now follow these details. He went upstairs to where she was already in bed. He woke her up and said, woman, I've brought some friends home. I want you to get up, go downstairs, make us a great supper and serve it to us. She did. She got up, got dressed, went downstairs, made a fine meal, and served it to all of these men that had been at the bar all evening long with a big smile on her face. Now, they were all at different stages of inebriation, and one guy who was a little more sober than the others decided that he was going to question her a bit about what she was doing. He said to her, ma'am, why in the world would you do this? This request is ridiculous and you haven't complained once about it. You've served us very cheerfully. 
She thought about his question just a bit or his statement, and then he followed it with this question. He said, why, why would you do that? She responded this way. Sir, when my husband and I were first married, we were both terrible sinners. The Lord has been pleased to call me out of that terrible condition, but my husband continues in it, and I am terrified for his future state. If he were to die as he is, he will be miserable forever. I think it's my duty to make his current state as comfortable as possible. Now, all of the people that were listening, all these guys that her husband had been at the bar with heard everything that she had to say, and the story goes that they made a decision to clean up their lives, but none more so than her husband, who became a committed Christian after hearing his wife say that, after seeing what she had done for him and for his friends, but more than that, after listening to the sermon she just preached. He changed his life. And I want you to think about what she was saying. We could boil it down to really two things. He was on a path where he was communicating that he was either oblivious to the concept of hell. Think of everything that he had seen in his wife's life. Everything that he had heard her say about the ways that she had made changes for herself. He was either oblivious to it or he couldn't have cared less. And there are a lot of people in both situations running around our world today. There are a lot of people that are oblivious to the idea of hell, partly because the church refuses to preach it. Preachers refuse to teach what the Bible has to say about this unbelievably important subject. And other people just couldn't care less. They've decided that it's really not that bad, so they don't need to worry about it. Well, I can't do anything about the latter, but the former I can and that's why for the next three weeks, I want to make sure that those that are in church with us will not be able to leave oblivious to the idea of hell. I don't want anybody to leave saying that they were ignorant about it. I want you to know exactly what the Bible says. So we're going to spend these weeks looking at it. Now, I can tell you right now, it's not going to be all that encouraging. This is a serious subject matter. But I'm going to show you a way around it and through it. I'm going to show you a way to victory Hopefully every week we're going to do that same thing because God has made that possible for us. Now, I do hope you'll bring a Bible with you because I want you to see what the Bible has to say about this. If you don't have one today, you can go ahead and grab one out of the chair racks. We're going to jump right into the Word of God and look at what is taught in our Bibles about this place. Let's start with really nothing more than a declaration. That's a great place to start. Hell is a real place. Even though modern Christianity has tried to put forward the idea that hell is nothing more than eternal separation from God, hell is a real place. In fact, for us to say that hell is nothing more than eternal separation from God is an attempt to sugarcoat the entire idea of hell. That is our attempt to water down what Scripture has to say about it. Hell is a real place. Now, I don't want you to listen to other people that say it's really not that bad. I don't want you to listen to anybody else's philosophy that says, well, it's just going to be this place of darkness. It's not that at all. Hell is a real place, and it is a place of torment. Recent surveys would say that 76% of people in the United States of America believe in heaven, but only 6% believe in hell. I don't understand how you can believe in one without the other, and I certainly don't understand how you could read the Bible and discount the entire idea of hell, but a lot of people have. 
Passages of Scripture like this in the book of 2 Peter make it very plain for us. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, turn there. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the sinful nature and despise authority. There's the declaration in and of itself, right from the Bible, hell is a real place. Yet a lot of people might say, preacher, you can look at that passage of scripture and easily see that hell is a real place, but it is only real for certain groups like fallen angels or the ancient world or the inhabitants of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what the Bible lays out. So it's really not a real place for us today. It only has to do with the ancients. It only has to do with times gone by. It's nothing that we have to pay attention to today. That belief, that philosophy has so permeated society that we have done our best to erase hell from anyone's thinking, particularly in the realm of psychology. Psychology has tried very hard, and they have been successful in their own right, to convince people that there is really no difference between good and evil. And in the process of that, they have accomplished their goal of removing all the teaching of hell. They use two different ways to do that, two very popular philosophies. One is called universalism. Universalism teaches that no matter what choices you make in life, no matter what path you're on, you will eventually end up in heaven. Now, there may be different degrees of reward in heaven, but still, everybody's going to get to heaven. So there is no concern about hell, there is no concern about a place of eternal punishment because we're all headed the same direction. The problem with the concept of universalism is it is completely contrary to the Bible. Go with me to John chapter 14, would you? John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That is the dead end that universalism will hit every time. That's the hurdle and the obstacle that they have to try to get over, and they can't. Those who preach and teach the idea of universalism are going to stumble across that verse at every turn. Jesus says he is the only way to heaven. He is the dividing line, the hinge pinch, however you want to look at it. He is the only path there is to eternity in heaven. For us to say that you can choose any other path goes directly against the teaching of the Bible. And even though modern philosophy and psychology would put that forward, they cannot handle this passage of Scripture. So they've created another belief system called annihilationism. 
Annihilationism teaches that we live, we die, and we cease to exist. Your last breath on this earth is your last breath. Annihilationism has become pretty popular to a lot of people because they believe that they're responsible for their own happiness and only the years that they have on this earth are going to matter. So you might as well go out and do whatever you want. You might as well go out and chase satisfaction and happiness any way you want because nothing else matters except the Bible. And the Bible shows us that annihilationism is not true. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verse 27. The writer says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. That judgment leads either to heaven or to hell. We have one life to live, one death to die, and then we're going to face judgment. It's just as plain as the nose on your face that that is God's plan and that's the path that he has put forward. Now, we can throw out all kinds of other ideas and try to make it go away, but we get in trouble every time we do that. I could agree with C.S. Lewis and several other great preachers that have said, I would just assume the idea of hell not being the Bible. I wish we didn't have to preach it. I would prefer it if everybody really did go to heaven. What a great gift that would be. But here's the problem, and C.S. Lewis detailed it himself. He said, the problem with that is that my opinion does not matter. What I want is immaterial. Now here, this may be kind of hard for some of you to hear. The same is true for you. What you want and your opinions don't matter in regard to eternity. So for you to say, well, I just choose not to believe in hell, I just choose to not accept it as a reality, has no bearing whatsoever. No matter how much we want it to be that way, no matter how many psychologists and philosophers try to tell us that they don't think there's a heaven, they don't think there's a hell, still doesn't matter. God's Word shows us the truth. God's Word lays it out for us. You might be thinking to yourself, well, that's just two passages of Scripture. John chapter 14 and Hebrews chapter 9, that's, that's not enough for us to really trust. Well, if that isn't enough, then let me encourage you to pay attention to the words of Jesus. Because Jesus spoke more about hell than he ever did heaven. He actually spoke more about hell than he ever, are you ready for this? Spoke about love. This was a huge issue for him. Now we could easily think to ourselves, why? Why was that such a big deal for Jesus? He was trying to direct people towards heaven. Wasn't that why he was here? Wasn't that what he was encouraging people to let their minds come to rest on? Well, it certainly was. But in the process of that, it was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to warn people about what sits on the other side so that he could direct people to where they needed to be. So Jesus took it very seriously. He took it very seriously. That's hard for a lot of people in today's world to accept. In fact, that's even hard for a lot of preachers in today's world to accept. And that is a travesty, a true travesty. You'll hear statements like this on a regular basis. I just don't think that a loving God would send anyone to hell. Preachers have actually gotten to a place where they're preaching that a loving God would never send anyone to hell. Now, you may have never thought that yourself, but the odds are you've had somebody say that to you 
in a moment of transparency, let me just ask, how many of you have either thought that yourself or heard somebody else communicate it? A loving God would never send anyone to hell. Look at all the hands that are up and the heads that are bobbing. The problem with that is this. God doesn't send people to hell. He loves you enough to let you choose to go there. You see, that's the way it works. A loving God would never send anybody to hell? Fine, I'll go ahead and accept that philosophy, but then I'm going to tell you this, He'll love you enough to let you choose to go there. That's your choice. So this whole idea that a loving God would never send anyone to hell is a philosophical mess. It is a logical nightmare to try to fight your way through. In fact, the only way that I can make it make sense in my mind is this way. I want you to imagine that my three children came to me and said, Daddy, do you love us? And I say to them, oh yeah, I love you, kids. Well, if you love us, Dad, then you will let us smoke pot, drink beer, and drive fast. And if you really love us, Dad, you'll buy us a car to do it in. And if you don't, then you don't really love us because a loving father would never deny his children the opportunity to smoke pot, drink beer, and drive fast. How could you do that to us? That's the same exact philosophy. That's the same path of logic as those that would say... A loving God would never send anyone to hell. Well, a loving God will allow you to choose that. Now, if my children were to come and say something ludicrous to me, like, can we smoke pot, drink beer, drive fast, and will you buy us the car to do it in? I'm absolutely going to say no. I'm going to ground them until they're 80, and then we're going to go through all kinds of different things like that. But you know what? Once they're outside of my watchful eye, I don't have any control over what they're doing. They may still choose to do those things. And there will be consequences for it every time. Sometimes death is the consequence. They made a choice and it led them to that point. Well, hell fits in that same category. Jesus knew it, so he warned us about it. I want to show you five of his warnings. There are many others. I'm just going to show you five today. They all come from the Gospel of Matthew, so it'll be easy for you to find them and just follow along with me. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. We're into the Sermon on the Mount now. Jesus is preaching the best message that has ever been preached. And he says this in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, people have stumbled over that passage for a long time, trying to figure out exactly what Jesus was talking about. Is anger really a sin? Is saying to somebody, you fool, is that really a sin that will lead us to hell? The answer is no. Anger is a redeemable sin. Anger is one of those things that God can transform within us, and He does on a regular basis. In fact, I was talking to a guy after first service who said, you know, I have struggled with anger all my life, but after I was baptized, it's pretty well disappeared. And he looked at his wife and said, isn't that true? I'm I'm not nearly as angry as I used to be. And he kind of had his chest puffed out a little bit, thinking, oh, she's about to pat me on the back. And she did just a little bit. But then she followed it up with this, depends on the day. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of funny, but his point is really good, that since he had given his life to Christ, anger began to fall off the page. It was no longer this defining aspect of who he was. What Jesus is trying to teach 
is that anger, if it is left unchecked, will become bitterness. And when bitterness takes hold in a person's life, they will separate themselves from the things of God. That's what bitterness does. So Jesus is warning us that if you're not careful, once anger finds its way into your life, if you can't get it to a place where it can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and you can get rid of it, it can fester within you to the point that it becomes such a strong entity within you that you want nothing to do with God. Sometimes that anger takes hold and people want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with the things of the Lord. And eventually then they want nothing to do with God himself. So Jesus is warning people, you be careful. Because anger, when it is left unchecked, can put you on a path directly to hell. Now let's go from chapter 5 to chapter 13. Verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, a lot of people have heard those very verses and found themselves saying, what in the world is Jesus talking about? That doesn't really make sense to me. If you are counted among that number, then recognize that you're in good company. Even the disciples were scratching their heads after Jesus said that. So later on in chapter 13, he explained that whole message to them. Listen to this, verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now here's what Jesus is teaching. Yep, there are bad people that roam the earth. There are good people and there are bad. You ever found yourself saying, if there was really a God, this wouldn't exist? Why are there good people and bad people? Well, Jesus just explained it. But he also explained what's going to happen at the end of time. It's not our place. It's not your place to deal with this. It is God's place to deal with it. And the time will come when the harvest is ready, when the good seed, those that have lived a righteous life, will be bundled together and go to heaven. The bad seed, the bad seed will be thrown into a fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And all those questions that have run through your mind about why this person was allowed to do this and that person was allowed to do that and why evil has made its way into the world, all of that will become very clear for you as God takes care of it. In fact, the truth of it is this, if you are a Christian, you won't care anymore. 
You've been harvested and are in the presence of Jesus. What happens to the others? Not even going to be on your screen. But Jesus wanted us to know when the time is right, God will take care of it. Now we're still in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, we're still in chapter 13. Let's go to verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. I want you to pay close attention. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, the church, is like this. This is hard for some people. There are even folks in the church that are headed to hell. Now, there are many others. In fact, I would say multitudes more that are on their way to heaven. But evil people even find their way into the church. You ever had somebody tell you, I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there? It's said all the time. Well, here's what Jesus had to say about that. I might add myself that a lot of times there aren't a bunch of hypocrites until a hypocrite shows up. And so that's, that's the way that works. Hypocrisy is nothing more than this. Folks, listen to this. This is what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is simply a matter of saying there is no God. And then in a time of great need, calling out to the God that you didn't believe existed. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not a person that's saying, I am struggling against certain sins in my life, and every once in a while those struggles win. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not a person that's saying, I am growing in my relationship with Christ, and sometimes I fail and I mess up. That's not hypocrisy. That is simply growing in Christ and a part of discipleship. Hypocrisy happens when a person says there is no God, and then they cry out to God. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. Sometimes in the church, ungodly people make their way in, and they remain ungodly. And a lot of times, they cause a lot of problems. God says, I'll deal with it. In my time, I will deal with it. And in the process of teaching that, not only about the church, but about the world, he causes us to take a close look at ourselves. And that's where this issue of hell really comes into play. You have to take a close look at yourself. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 18. This is Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now here's what Jesus wants us to know. If you are stuck in a pattern of sin that is leading you further and further away from God, and you know that your right hand or your right arm is responsible for it, cut your arm off. If you know that your eye is responsible for it, gouge your eye out. Now, that's hard for us to imagine because most of us have not met somebody that has cut their own arm off or gouged their own eye out. So there have to be applications of this in the world that we live in today, and there are. You might say, well, gosh, I wish somebody would tell me what they are. I'm glad you ask. Here's just one of them. 
This is just a simple little example, but it's very, very tangible, especially a few years ago for men, but it is becoming more so for women in this culture, culture as well. Pornography has run rampant since the, the advent of the internet. The internet has made it available to all kinds of different people. For the longest time, men were the, the greatest victims, but today women are as well. So folks will come into my office, they'll tell me about their wrestling match with pornography, and this will always be my statement every time. Get rid of your computer. If it is causing you to sin, get rid of your computer. Pluck your eye out. Cut your arm off. It is better, according to the teaching of Jesus, to enter the kingdom of heaven technologically ignorant than it is to say that I know how to surf the web and I know how to do this and I know how to do that and I can take care of anything on a computer. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Now, there's a lot of times that people will come back with all kinds of different excuses. They'll say things like this. Well, we can't get rid of our computer because my wife needs that for work or my kids need that for school or on and on and on the the excuses go. Well, that's all they are. They're excuses. There's a way around every part of that. Cut it off off. Now, there are other applications of the same thing. If you're on a path that's leading you to hell and you know what's causing it, stop it. Cut it off. Gouge it out. Get rid of it. Get it out of your life because what hangs in the balance is hell. Get rid of it. Cut it off. Gouge it out. Get rid of it because this is what waits for those that One more passage for you. We're still in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more, but the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the other talent, or the one talent, I'm sorry, came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. By the way, if You're a note taker. You can draw a big circle around the last two verses we just read and write these words next to it. Blame and denial. That's a great thing to write right there. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now those are just five of Jesus' teaching on hell that all lead us to this place where we can ask the most logical, natural of questions. 
If hell is real, and we started with that declaration, what's it going to be like? Well, it's going to take us a couple weeks to actually answer that. But let me set the stage for you from what we just read. We heard this term repeatedly. It's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that is somewhat metaphorical, but it is also very literal. It's hard for us to understand biblical terminology like that. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I I don't really know and I don't really understand how that can be. Well, a lot of great scholars, particularly scholars of the original languages, would say that weeping and gnashing of teeth is the place where God gives us over to our sin. Romans chapter 1 talks about that very thing, God giving people over to their sin. Today, there's a a lot of scholars that would like to say that when God gives somebody over to their sin, it just means that he said, okay, go ahead, and in some small way blesses the sin. Well, that's not true at all. Other people have said that when God gives somebody over to their sin, he's saying, I'm just going to release you and turn my back on you. But the truth of God giving somebody over to their sin says that God is saying, I'm going to let you face the consequences and the judgment for your decisions. And that will lead you to a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When God gives you over to sin, he's giving you over to judgment and condemnation. It takes a lot for God to do that. When he does, that's what it leads to. Now, we can totally understand the weeping part of that. That makes a lot of sense to us. Because if now you find yourself in a place that is eternal, and all you can do is face the consequences and the judgment for your decisions, you can imagine that you would cry until there were no more tears left. But God has told us that you can't get to a place where that stops. The weeping continues forever. You're out of tears, but the weeping continues You are out of of any liquid to come out of your pores, but the weeping continues forever, with no end, forever. And then there's this gnashing of teeth idea, and that's, that's really the part of the metaphor that's the hardest for us to understand. What in the world is that? Well, if you were to look it up, literally this is what you would find. Gnashing of teeth means the grinding of your teeth in pain, anguish, or anger. The grinding of your teeth in pain, anguish, or anger. Forever. Forever. Now break those down for just a second. There will be immense pain, physical pain, that never comes to an end. Those of you that have experienced extreme moments of pain, you know what it's like to have your entire body racked with it, and all you can do is grind your teeth to make it through one moment to the next. Again, moment of transparency. How many of you have had a kidney stone? You know what I'm talking about. You are grinding your teeth in pain. I have ground mine in pain through a kidney stone. But add to that anguish. That anguish comes through sorrow. As you look back at the fact that choices that you made brought you to this place. This real place. And the sorrow and the anguish is too much. But just to ice the cake... Anger comes into play. And that anger is directed only at yourself. Only at yourself. In Luke chapter 16, the Bible says that a rich man had died and so did Lazarus the beggar. We looked at that a a few weeks ago as we were looking at it from the side of heaven. Well, the Bible would actually use this term about the rich man who was in hell or in Hades. He was in torment forever. 
And that's one of those things that you have to understand about this very real place. Just like heaven, it is eternal. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Jesus says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That word eternal is incredibly significant. It lasts forever and ever and ever. Jewish tradition held that any person that went to hell would spend no more than one year there. That's tradition. That's not the Bible. Not the Old Testament or the New. That's just tradition. The Bible says that hell is eternal, forever. There is no changing the destination after you die. There is no getting a second chance. There is no restart or redo button. It is forever. I don't want to leave you with that thought. I really don't. I want to leave you with some good news about this. And like I'd said, that's going to be my goal every week. And the good news that I want to leave you with this week is actually, it's great news. It's fantastic news. I found a passage of Scripture studying for the message that I'm not sure I'd ever seen before. Now, I know I had read over it, but I don't know that I'd ever read it. There's a big difference. A lot of times we read over Scripture. We don't read it. And I'm not sure that I'd ever read this verse. And when I found it this past week, I can honestly tell you it was like walking along a trail and, and finding a boulder-sized gold nugget and dragging it out of there. This thing is a gold nugget. And I want you to see it for yourself as the worship team comes up here. Turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to go to the Old Testament to find this valuable passage. 2 Samuel Chapter 14, verse 14. Still some pages turning. I'm not going to read it until they stop. I want you to see this. 2 Samuel 14, verse 14. All right, the Bible says, Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, He devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. Isn't that a great verse? Look at the depth of this. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Right there you have proof of the fact that when your life is over here, your life is over here. It can't be recovered. That means that at that point, your eternal condition, your eternal state, your eternal place is already determined. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. My friends, that is a messianic passage in the Old Testament. Because do you know what way God devised that we would not remain estranged from him? Jesus Christ. Salvation through his Son. That's the good news. Even as we face teaching from Scripture about hell, and God knows it's overwhelming to us, He has provided His Son. That we don't have to worry about it. That we don't have to remain estranged from Him. That we don't have to let the anxiety of hell overwhelm us in this life and carry us into the next. God has made a way. And He did it through the cross and through His Son's gift of the sacrifice of His life. 
That's why we can sing words like we're about to. Jesus saves.